You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Good morning. Please turn to Job chapter 9. And what I hope, in what I hope does not become a weekly occurrence, one more retraction from last week. And um, Bill and Sherry probably noticed this more than anybody. I was talking about John O'Dean Schnauz. And I was listening to it afterwards. I don't remember saying this at the time, but I said they were from Indiana. We all know that's not true. They're from Illinois, and I know that. They're actually closer to Missouri than they are to Indiana. But anyway, not a big deal. Just noticed it and thought I'd better say something. Job chapter 9 is where we are this morning. A rabbi, a Hindu, and a lawyer are in a car. You know where this is going. They run out of gas and are forced to stop at a farmer's house. The farmer says that there are only two extra beds, and one person will have to sleep in the barn. The Hindu says, I'm humble. I'll sleep in the barn. So he goes out to the barn. In a few minutes, the farmer hears a knock on the door. It's the Hindu. And he says, there's a cow in the barn. It's against my beliefs to sleep with a cow. So... The rabbi says, I'm humble, I'll sleep in the barn. A few minutes later, the farmer hears another knock on the door, and it's the rabbi. He says that it's against his beliefs to sleep where there is a pig, and there's a pig in the barn. So the lawyer is forced to sleep in the barn. A few minutes later, there's a knock on the door. It's the cow and the pig. And that's just a joke, so no nasty mailer lawsuits, please. So how many, uh, I shouldn't even going to ask. I'm not even going to ask, okay, because it's a can of worms. But I'm sure that there are, are, in one way or another, many of us here who have been involved in some kind of court proceeding, okay? Like uh, I was called for uh, jury duty a couple of times. I actually had to serve, I think, once. And, um, you know, for all the time spent going to potentially be picked. Uh, yeah, there was only one time I was actually chosen, and uh, we never got so far as, as uh, coming up with a verdict for some other reasons. Um, and then there was the time I was in traffic court. I'm not going to tell you about that. But anyway, yeah. There are a lot of roles in which you could appear in court. Uh, there's plaintiff, defendant, prosecutor, defense attorney, witness, Juror, bailiff, clerk of court, judge, these are all some of the different people that you will find involved in the judicial process. And the adversarial judicial system with which we are familiar in the United States is not perfect, we all know that, but it works pretty well when it works as intended. Principles of this system include the presumption of innocence of the accused, competent representation for any defendant, A jury composed of the peers of the accused, right to a speedy trial. Punishment that is commensurate to the crime. There are evidentiary standards that must be met. And when one or more of these things are violated, there is an appeals process that can extend all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States. That's still not a perfect system, but it is certainly better than a lot of judicial systems in the world. And another important principle on which our judicial system is based is the impartiality of the judge and jury. 
Potential jurors are questioned extensively to determine whether they might have any prejudice either for or against the accused. Judges are supposed to recuse themselves rather than running any risk of prejudice. If a judge hears a case and it is found later that there is a reason to believe that the judge was not impartial in some way, then that will almost certainly be grounds to appeal the verdict. But imagine a courtroom in which there are just two people present, the accused and the judge. No impartial jury is present to weigh the evidence and pronounce a verdict. No defense counsel sits at the defense table to vigorously advocate for the accused. And to top it all off, the judge has a major grudge against the defendant. The trial, such as it is, will be a mere formality. The verdict has been predetermined. Regardless of any evidence to the contrary, the judge will find the accused guilty, already has really, and no appeals will be allowed. Now if you're thinking that's a bleak picture, you're right. I'm sure that none of us would hope for or expect that kind of treatment if we were accused of something and brought to trial, and especially not if we were innocent. As we look at Job chapters 9 and 10, we find that this is Job's understanding of his own situation. These, both of these chapters very much parallel a uh, uh, commentary on legal uh, matters. As far as Job is concerned, God has convicted him and is punishing him even though Job is innocent and never got to present his case at trial. In the middle of Job's lament concerning his situation, he expresses his desire that someone could stand in his defense, bridging the gap of justice that seems to exist between himself and God. Today's message is called, I Need a Lawyer, and we'll start in Job chapter 9, verse 1. And Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains, they know not how, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea, who makes the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, who does great things, unfathomable, and wondrous works without number. Were he to pass me by, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. Last week we heard Job's friend Bildad declare that God would again fill Job's mouth with laughter and his lips with rejoicing. Job begins chapter 9 with, I know you're right, but... I know you're right part wasn't sincere. Anyway, Job doesn't find much comfort in Bildad's words. Job feels like he's been tried and convicted already. And... The title of this uh, major, you know, the main point here, I wish I could sue. I think Job uh, would like to bring a countersuit against God. But he knows he won't prevail. And have you thought about what would be the consequences of suing God and losing? 
right? Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to engage in that. So uh, Job knows that that's not going to be his best approach. Uh, Job goes on uh, throughout this section to expound on God's mighty power, able to remove mountains, to shake the earth, and to trample the waves of the sea, all illustrating that God has absolute power over our entire world. And then Job goes on to say that God's absolute power extends to the entire universe. Job recognized that God is creator of everything. And he even mentions specific constellations of stars. My translation calls them the bear. You ever seen that one? Can you see that from there? Yeah, it's a little faint, I know, in, in the room here. We, we could darken the room, but you see there's the handle and there's the cup of the, what we call the Big Dipper, Ursa Major, right? Uh, the, other, the next one that's mentioned here is Orion. And uh, any of you who studied that in seventh grade or, or some other, thank you, uh, might, have, might recognize Orion's belt and the four stars that make up the corners of that constellation there. And the Pleiades. Now, I confess, this is a southern uh, constellation. You probably can't see it through my head. Uh, I don't, I, I'm not as familiar with this one, but you see the, the, the main stars of the Pleiades there. He mentions another one in the text there, the Chambers of the South. I'm not uh, uh, familiar with what he's talking about there. These are modern names for familiar star formations. The Bear, Orion, the Pleiades. We're not absolutely sure, but there's good reason to believe that regardless of what he called them, Job saw these constellations much like we do today, only he saw them 4,000 years ago. Now when I read these verses and I see those names and I know that that's what they refer to and that he very likely saw and would recognize these same things, I feel a little closer kinship to Job than I did before. Here's a guy existing in the world like you and I do. And uh, there's some concrete commonality that we have. Job then says that God can do whatever he wants. And man is helpless to stop him. God can move invisibly among men. Or God can take from man whatever God wishes. You think Job's thinking like all his possessions maybe and even his children. And man could not even question him. In verse 12, Job's question of who could say to him, what are you doing? Those are the words of a legal accusation. What are you doing? We're going to, we're going to take you, uh, hold you to account for what it is that you're doing. What are you doing is the, the legal accusation there. Job would bring suit against God if he thought he might succeed. But in his mind, his case is hopeless. Let's go to verse 14. How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. If it is a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one. And if it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. It is all one. Therefore I say, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. 
If the scourge kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? If you wanted to persuade God that he were wrong, where would you start? I I know, you'd say, well, I wouldn't do that. What argument would you use? What words would be adequate to persuade God somehow? You're convinced. God, you're wrong. I, I need to convince you of that. How would you, how would you do that? What could you say? Even if you were sure you were right, your only hope would be to throw yourself on God's mercy. Job felt like he had no expectation that God would listen to him. As he says in verse 15, For though I were right, I could not answer. Job had not received... Uh, and there's another... Uh, Verse 16, if I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. Why would God even listen? Job had not received the assurance that you and I have received as Christians from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, where the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We know as Christians that God does listen. God does hear. But Job was not convinced of that for himself. Job then accuses God of using his superior strength to push Job down and to keep him down. Job portrays God as relentless, not allowing Job even to catch his breath. In terms of strength, Job cannot stand before God. In terms of justice, Job has no standing to summon God to a hearing. You you go up to God, give him the, the, the summons, you've been served. You can't do that. Job knew you couldn't do that. And so he feels helpless. Job has concluded that the end of both the innocent and the guilty is the same. Job has declared God to be some sort of cosmic disturber of the peace, responsible for the injustice of undeserved suffering, saying in verse 24, if it's not he, if it's not he who blinds the eyes of the judges, if it's not he who allows the wicked to prosper, then who is it? In his College Press NIV commentary on Job, Stephen M. Hooks says this. Somewhere. This phrase reveals the problem that undeserved suffering poses for the monotheist. An atheist can look at life's injustices and declare there is no God. A polytheist can view the same and explain the bad gods are doing this. But the monotheist has a more difficult time. If there is but one God who made all things and who rules all things, what is the origin of life's cruel absurdities? Now we might want to answer the question with, well, Satan. But according to the first two chapters of Job, at least in this instance, and I think it's true otherwise, Satan is limited to doing only what God permits. Job's answer is that God is the one responsible, so God is the one Job blames. And it raises a question for me. Is God responsible for all of our troubles? Well, certainly I would agree that because God is both sovereign and all-powerful, everything that happens is either caused in one way or another or permitted by Him. 
Some of what he allows also subverts what he desires, as in the case of those who hear the gospel but reject salvation in Christ. Other things that he allows, like the suffering of Job, or perhaps trials that you and I face, he does so to serve his own purposes, of which we may or may not be informed. I think Job's big mistake right here is to assume that we can determine God's acts to be unjust based on our own incomplete understanding of any situation. Let's go on to verse 25. Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They slip by like reed boats, like an eagle that swoops on its prey. Though I say, I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my sad countenance and be cheerful... I am afraid of all my pains. I know that you will not acquit me. I am accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you would plunge me into the pit and my own clothes would would abhor me. For he is not a man as I am that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Let him remove his rod from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but I am not like that in myself. As Job again says he believes he will die soon, he coupled that thought with one that many of us have had at one time or another. Why bother? Why should I even try? For God, or excuse me, for Job, God is so distant from him that they cannot be brought into agreement. No amount of positive outlook or ritualistic purification will restore him to God's good graces. And the distance that Job feels from God is more than just philosophical. It's more than intellectual. Job says he is separated from God by the difference in their very natures. He is not a man as I am that I may answer him that we may go to court together. Job might have said it this way. If only God could become a man. Or if only there were someone who knows both what it is to be God and what it is to be man. Such a person as that would understand my situation. He would know that I'm right. And he would be able to plead my case and justify me before God. And the way I see it, Job wanted a lawyer who existed both as God And as man. And we'll talk about that a bit more at the end of the message today. Go to chapter 10. I loathe my own life. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, Do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Is it right for you indeed to oppress, to reject the labor of your hands, and to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh, or do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of a mortal, or your years as man's years, that you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin? According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty, yet there is no deliverance from your hand. And so in chapter 10, as we begin it here, in spite of his assertion that he could never stand against God in court, Job levels his charges against God anyway. The first of these charges is that God is acting unjustly. Job claims that God has found him guilty without presenting the charges against him. 
Has God made Job just so he can then destroy him like some child with a sandcastle? How can God punish Job but allow the wicked to prosper? Job clearly expected better from God. Job next accuses God of acting like a man whose limited knowledge and lifespan drive him to use unethical methods to extract a confession from Job. Oh, God's got him out the rubber hose and the bright light and got him in the, in the room there and you're going to beat the confession out of him. Is that what's happening here? In Job's mind, yes. That's exactly what's happening here. Finally, Job accuses God of acting against his own knowledge. You know I'm innocent, God, but you treat me like I'm guilty. And I have to stop here because I hear Job and I try to reconcile that with the character that I know he possesses, that God himself says Job possesses. And I think how terrible, how terrible it was for Job, the upright, blameless, and faithful man of God, to come to such a skewed perspective of God's character and purposes. But suffering can do that if you're not careful. We must constantly remind ourselves that Job doesn't know the end to his own story. He believes that there is no deliverance from his misery, but we know otherwise. As Christians, we surely acknowledge that Christ is coming back. And when he does, at that point, we will enter into eternity. We'll have heaven and eternal life. But do we trust God with our future here on earth? And it's one thing to say, well, you know, at the end, you know, eternity, I, I'm... I'm pretty sure God's got that covered and I can trust him with that part. But what about between here and there? When we can't see the end of our story, do we trust God to see it and to handle it correctly? Job had come to that point where he was not able to do that. I don't want to see us get to that same point where we're not able to do that either. Go to verse 8. Your hands, Job speaking to God, your hands fashioned and made me all together, and would you destroy me? Remember now that you have made me as clay, and would you turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? You have granted me life and loving kindness, and your care has preserved my spirit, yet these things you have concealed in your heart. I know that this is within you. If I sin, then you would take note of me and would not acquit me of my guilt. If I am wicked, woe to me. And if I am righteous, I dare not lift up my head. I am sated with disgrace and conscious of my misery. Should my head be lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion. And again, you would show your power against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your anger toward me. Hardship after hardship is with me. In Job 10 verses 8 through 12, Job expresses a common rationale for why he should not be held accountable by God in this manner. Job says to God, I wouldn't even be here if it weren't for you. It's not my fault. You made me this way. You hear people say this. I, I, I'm just this way. This is just the way that I am. God just made me this way. How can I help it? It's not my fault. You hear people say that. Job also says, did you make me just so you could destroy me? At least two other writers of Scripture address similar complaints, and both say that the argument is without merit. In Isaiah 45, 9, Isaiah says, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? I've heard that before, right? 
And in Romans 9.19, the Apostle Paul writes, this is God speaking, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Presenting the same argument that Job presents. But Paul continues in verse 20, Romans 9.20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? As much as we might want to sometime. We have no right. Either to question God as to the propriety of our own existence. Really? Really? Is it right that you brought me in and made me this way? Right? Or to call him unjust in the light of our troubles. Though we may certainly understand why Job wanted to do both. And then in verses 13 through 17. Again, Job appeals to a common sentiment that arises in the midst of hardship or opposition. Someone is out to get me. You've heard people express that. Maybe you've expressed it. Okay? Someone is out to get me. Now, variously, this someone is identified as maybe the government or a representative of the government, like a law enforcement official. Might be a teacher or a school administrator. A bully or some other peer with whom we've gotten crossways. Uh, this someone might be the unnamed and generic they. They are out to get me, right? Or even the entire universe. Sometimes people being especially dramatic will say that. The whole, the whole world or the whole universe is out to get me. Well, no matter who the alleged source of persecution is, the complaint is the same. They, whoever that is, will do anything they can to make me miserable. And Job says this to God. Your eyes are on me to catch me sinning. If I'm righteous, I cower in fear of what you'll do next. If my situation improves, you've made it your goal to tear me down again. Seems like you just get more and more angry with me. That's Job expressing himself to God. Now Job was wrong about God being out to get him. Just as we are often wrong in assigning malicious intent to others named or unnamed. Oh, I'm not saying it ever happens. I'm saying it doesn't happen as much as people think. Like Job, we want there to be a reason for why bad things happen to us, even if we have to make up that reason. You know, Go to verse 18. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Job says to God. Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been carried from womb to tomb. Would he not let my few days alone? Withdraw from me that I may have a little cheer before I go and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow. The land of utter gloom is darkness itself. A deep shadow without order and which shines as the darkness. Interesting expression. At the end of chapter 10, Job expresses for the third time his desire to die and to be done with life. And there are two things that stand out to me in these last five verses. First is Job's statement that he would rather that no one had ever laid eyes on him rather than God causing his birth. Uh, the New American Standard, which I just read to you, version renders it this way, and I'm repeating this on purpose. I should have been as though I had not been. Carried from womb to tomb. And I read that, and, you know, from a literary perspective, it is beautifully poetic. 
that's just wonderfully constructed. And I, I get caught up in that, and then I realize what Job's saying. Really? I should have been as though I had not been? Carried from womb to tomb. The delivery just continuing on to, be in, to end in the grave. That's Job's desire now. The second thing that I notice here is the number of times Job refers to darkness and gloom in the final two verses of chapter 10. In my Bible, there are six different mentions of darkness, deep shadow, and gloom. And that's you know impressive enough to me. But my commentaries tell me that these represent four different Hebrew words, two of which are used twice each. He didn't just, it wasn't just content just to say darkness, 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 gloom. He, he had to use four different words for them. Joe's view of his death is that he would end up in the land of darkness, deep shadow, gloom, and deepest night. As nearly as I can tell, those are the, the simplest translations of those four Hebrew words. And that last, that last phrase, the land of utter gloom is darkness itself, of deep shadow without order, and which shines as the darkness. Not two words you ordinarily put together, right? Yeah, darkness so powerful that it shines. These uh, expressions of Job about where his death will take him, the way he talks, it sounds like he believes that he is already there. That's really what it feels like. Job thinks he's already there. And it's just a, a difference between breathing or not breathing at this point. Now, I may be speaking for myself, but my guess is that many of us would prefer to have nothing to do with courts, judges, trials, juries, and especially lawyers, if given the choice. But what about when we don't have that choice? Either because it is the only way to preserve our rights, or because we have been summoned there to answer some accusation. When we can't avoid the courts, we want them to work as they're supposed to allowing us to establish our innocence or to mount a vigorous defense in securing the best possible outcome. Job believed himself to be innocent, but he also believed that proper judicial process was being denied to him. He, he thought his only hope would be to throw himself on God's mercy. And he's half right. He's half right. God's mercy was his only hope, but strictly speaking... Now, again, there's two levels here. We've got we to think about this, okay? There's two levels here because God assessed Job to be blameless and upright. And in those terms, he was. And as far as what was happening to him, if this were going to be punishment for some kind of sin or some kind of crime that Job committed, it's far beyond anything that Job has done. And as we see things from our human perspective, it's... Way too much punishment. You know, it's like the death penalty for parking violations. We don't do that, right? That's how Job sees this. And in that way, he's blameless and upright, but not in the absolute sense. You can't look at Job and say that there has never been anything in his entire life that was not sinful. You just can't. We're assured of that. And so Job's half right here in the most technical sense. God... God's mercy was his only hope. But strictly speaking, Job was not innocent. Let's consider this. If Job were right, if Job were right, and even the innocent required special intervention to be justified before God, assuming we could find any innocent, I mean, 
How much more so the guilty? If Job, a blameless and upright man, could not stand before God, what hope is there for a sinner like me? Well, the answer is Jesus. And, and it fills Job's desire, whether wittingly or not. I don't know if there's intent here or understanding of what would ultimately come to pass. I kind of suspect not. And maybe I'm reading more into it than I ought to be, but I hope not. Because what Job wanted, as I understand him saying it, or as I perceive him saying it, what Job wanted, someone to stand between him and God who knew what it was like to be both. You and I have. You and I have in Jesus. Fully God and fully man, he has stepped in between us and God to, as Job put it, to lay his hand on us both at the same time. Though we are guilty in our sin, deserving of death, Jesus took our punishment on himself so we could go free. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that this is what God did with Jesus. God made Jesus, okay, that's, that's how this is set up. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not just escaping punishment, but made into something, transformed into something wonderful. Job believed he needed someone to stand between himself and God, to bring him and God into agreement with each other. The, the New Testament word is to be reconciled. Right? About this, he was completely right. Job needed a mediator between himself and God, and so do we, and his name is Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6 say, For there is one God... And one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And then we read the Gospel of John, and then we read First John, and we read the other things that Paul writes, and we know that this Jesus, this man Jesus, is also God himself. And I ask then this morning, is Jesus your mediator? Have you been justified, redeemed, and sanctified by his sacrifice on the cross? His sacrifice is for you, but to be justified, redeemed, and sanctified are not automatic. You must receive those things from him. So are you still condemned in your sins? Or has the truth of Romans chapter 8 verse 1 been applied to you? Therefore there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, will you accept Jesus as your mediator between you and God today? If so, please come forward as we sing our invitation song.